Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, non-domination, cooperation, mutual aid in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Culbertson. This is another episode in the Anarchism 101 series in which I read an important anarchist text and then discuss that text and the life and times of the author with a scholar. Today I'm reading not one, but two relatively brief texts from Lucy Parsons. The first is entitled The Principles of Anarchism. The second is her speech on June 29th of the founding of the Wobblies. You can find more information about Anarchism 101, the complete schedule, and all the episodes so far at my website, everydayanarchism.com. After the music, The Principles of Anarchism by Lucy Parsons. The Principles of Anarchism Lucy Parsons Comrades and friends, I think I cannot open my address more appropriately than by stating my experience and my long connection with the reform movement. It was during the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 that I first became interested in what is known as the labor question. I then thought, as many thousands of earnest, sincere people think, that the aggregate power operating in human society, known as government, could be made an instrument in the hands of the oppressed to alleviate their sufferings. But a closer study of the origin, history, and tendency of governments convinced me that this was a mistake. I came to understand how organized governments use their concentrated power to retard progress by their ever-ready means of silencing the voice of discontent if raised in vigorous protest against the machinations of the scheming few who always did, always will, and always must rule in the Council of Nations, where majority rule is recognized as the only means of adjusting the affairs of the people. I came to understand that such concentrated power can be always wielded in the interest of the few and at the expense of the many. Government, in its last analysis, is this power reduced to a science. Governments never lead. They follow progress. When the prison, stake, or scaffold can no longer silence the voice of the protesting minority, progress moves on a step, but not until then. I will state this contention in another way. I learned by close study that it made no difference what fair promises a political party, out of power, might make to the people in order to secure their confidence. When once securely established in control of the affairs of society that they were after all but human, with all the human attributes of the politician. Among these are, first, to remain in power at all hazards. If not individually, then those holding essentially the same views as the administration must be kept in control. Second, in order to keep in power, it is necessary to build up a powerful machine, one strong enough to crush all opposition and silence all vigorous murmurs of discontent. Or the party machine might be smashed and the party thereby lose control. When I came to realize the faults, failings, shortcomings, aspirations, and ambitions of fallible man, I concluded that it would not be the safest nor best policy for society as a whole to entrust the management of all its affairs, with all their manifold deviations and ramifications in the hands of finite man, to be managed by the party which happened to come into power, and therefore was the majority party. Nor did it then, nor does it now, make one particle of difference to me what a party out of power may promise. 
It does not tend to allay my fears of a party. When entrenched and securely seated in power might do to crush opposition and silence the voice of the minority and thus retard the onward step of progress. My mind is appalled at the thought of a political party having control of all the details that go to make up the sum total of our lives. Think of it for an instant, that the party in power shall have all authority to dictate the kind of books that shall be used in our schools and universities. Government officials editing, printing, and circulating our literature, histories, magazines, and press. To say nothing of the thousand and one activities of life that a people engage in, in a civilized society. To my mind, the struggle for liberty is too great, and the few steps we have gained have been one at too great a sacrifice for the great mass of the people of this 20th century to consent to turn over to any political party the management of our social and industrial affairs. For all who are at all familiar with history know that men will abuse power when they possess it. For these and other reasons, I, after careful study and not through sentiment, turn from a sincere, earnest political socialist to the non-political phase of socialism, anarchism, because in its philosophy I believe I can find the proper conditions for the fullest development of the individual units in society, which can never be the case under government restrictions. The philosophy of anarchism is included in the word liberty, yet it is comprehensive enough to include all things else that are conducive to progress. No barriers whatever to human progression, to thought or investigation, are placed by anarchism. Nothing is considered so true or so certain that future discoveries may not prove it false. Therefore, it has but one infallible, unchangeable motto, freedom. Freedom to discover any truth, freedom to develop, to live naturally and fully. Other schools of thought are composed of crystallized ideas, principles that are caught and impaled between the planks of long platforms and considered too sacred to be disturbed by a close investigation. In all other issues, there is always a limit, some imaginary boundary line beyond which the searching mind dare not penetrate, lest some pet idea melt into a myth. But anarchism is the usher of science, the master of ceremonies to all forms of truth. It would remove all barriers between the human being and natural development. From the natural resources of the earth, all artificial restrictions, that the body might be nurtured, and from universal truth, all bars of prejudice and superstition, that the mind may develop symmetrically. Anarchists know that a long period of education must precede any great fundamental change in society. Hence, they do not believe in vote-begging, nor political campaigns, but rather in the development of self-thinking individuals. We look away from government for relief, because we know that force, legalized, invades the personal liberty of man, seizes upon the natural elements, and intervenes between man and natural laws. From this exercise of force through governments flows nearly all the misery, poverty, crime, and confusion existing in society. We perceive there are actual, material barriers blockading the way. These might be removed. If we could hope they would melt away, or be voted or prayed into nothingness, we would be content to wait and vote and pray. But they are like the great frowning rocks towering between us and a land of freedom, while the dark chasms of a hard-fought past yawn behind us. Crumbling they may be with their own weight and the decay of time, but to quietly stand under until they fall is to be buried in the crash. There is something to be done in a case like this. The rocks must be removed. Passivity while slavery is stealing over us is a crime. For the moment, we must forget that we are anarchists. When the work is accomplished, we may forget that we were revolutionists. 
Hence, most anarchists believe the coming change can only come through a revolution, because the possessing class will not allow a peaceful change to take place. Still, we are willing to work for peace at any price, except at the price of liberty. And what of the glowing beyond that is so bright that those who grind the faces of the poor say it is a dream? It is no dream. It is the real, stripped of brain distortions materialized into thrones and scaffolds, miters and guns. It is nature acting on her own interior laws as in all her other associations. It is a return to first principles. For were not the land, the water, the light, all free before governments took shape and form? In this free state, we will again forget to think of these things as property. It is real, for we as a race are growing up to it. The idea of less restriction and more liberty, and a confiding trust that nature is equal to her work, is permeating all modern thought. From the dark years, not so long gone by, when it was generally believed that man's soul was totally depraved and every human impulse bad, when every action, every thought, and every emotion was controlled and restricted, when the human frame, diseased, was bled, dosed, suffocated, and kept as far from nature's remedies as possible, when the mind was seized upon and distorted before it had time to evolve a natural thought. From those days to these years, the progress of this idea has been swift and steady. It is becoming more and more apparent that in every way we are governed best when we are governed least. Still unsatisfied, perhaps, the inquirer seeks for details, for ways and means and whys and wherefores. How will we go on like human beings, eating and sleeping, working and loving, exchanging and dealing, without government? So used have we become to organized authority in every department of life that ordinarily we cannot conceive of the most commonplace avocations being carried on without their interference and protection. But anarchism is not compelled to outline a complete organization of a free society. To do so with any assumption of authority would be to place another barrier in the way of coming generations. The best thought of today may become the useless vagary of tomorrow, and to crystallize it into a creed is to make it unwieldy. We judge from experience that man is a gregarious animal and instinctively affiliates with his kind, cooperates, unites in groups, works to better advantage combined with his fellow men than when alone. This would point to formations of cooperative communities, of which our present trade unions are embryonic patterns. Each branch of industry will no doubt have its own organization, regulations, leaders, etc. It will institute methods of direct communication with every member of that industrial branch in the world and establish equitable relations with all other branches. There would probably be conventions of industry which delegates would attend, where they would transact such business as was necessary, adjourn and from that moment be delegates no longer, but simply members of a group. To remain permanent members of a continuous Congress would be to establish a power that is certain, sooner or later, to be abused. No great central power like a Congress consisting of men who know nothing of their constituents' trades, interests, rights, or duties, would be over the various organizations or groups, nor would they employ sheriffs, policemen, courts, or jailers to enforce the conclusions arrived at while in session. The members of groups might profit by the knowledge gained through mutual interchange of thought afforded by conventions, if they choose, but they will not be compelled to do so by any outside force. Vested rights, privileges, charters, title deeds, upheld by all the paraphernalia of government, the visible symbol of power, such as prison, scaffold, and armies, will have no existence. 
There can be no privileges bought or sold and the transaction kept sacred at the point of the bayonet. Every man will stand on an equal footing with his brother in the race of life, and neither chains of economic thraldom nor menial drags of superstition shall handicap the one to the advantage of the other. Property will lose a certain attribute which sanctifies it now. The absolute ownership of it, the right to use or abuse, will be abolished, and possession, use, will be the only title. It will be seen how impossible it will be for one person to own a million acres of land without a title deed backed by a government ready to protect the title at all hazards, even to the loss of thousands of lives. He could not use the million acres himself, nor could he wrest from its depths the possible resources it contains. People have become so used to seeing the evidences of authority on every hand that most of them honestly believe that they would go utterly to the bad if it were not for the policeman's club or the soldier's bayonet. But the anarchist says, Remove these evidences of brute force and let man feel the revivifying influences of self-responsibility and self-control and see how we will respond to these better influences. The belief in a literal place of torment has nearly melted away. And instead of the direful results predicted, we have a higher and truer standard of manhood and womanhood. People do not care to go to the bad when they find they can as well as not. Individuals are unconscious of their own motives in doing good. While acting out their natures according to their surroundings and conditions, they still believe that they are being kept in the right path by some outside power, some restraint thrown around them by church or state. So the objector believes that with the right to rebel and secede sacred to him, he would forever be rebelling and seceding, thereby creating constant confusion and turmoil. Is it probable that he would, merely for the reason that he could do so? Men are to a great extent creatures of habit, and grow to love associations. Under reasonably good conditions, he would remain where he commences, if he wishes to, and if he did not. Who has any natural right to force him into relations distasteful to him? Under the present order of affairs, persons do unite with societies and remain good, disinterested members for life, where the right to retire is always conceded. What we anarchists contend for is a larger opportunity to develop the units in society, that mankind may possess the right as a sound being to develop that which is broadest, noblest, highest, and best, unhandicapped by any centralized authority where he shall have to wait for his permits to be signed, sealed, approved, and handed down to him before he can engage in the active pursuits of life with his fellow being. We know that after all, as we grow more enlightened under this larger liberty, we will grow to care less and less for that exact distribution of material wealth, which in our greed-nurtured senses somehow seems now so impossible to think upon carelessly. The man and woman of loftier intellects, in the present, think not so much of the riches to be gained by their efforts as of the good they can do for their fellow creatures. There is an innate spring of healthy action in every human being who has not been crushed and pinched by poverty and drudgery from before his birth that impels him onward and upward. He cannot be idle if he would. It is natural for him to develop, expand, and use the powers within him when not repressed, as it is for the rose to bloom in the sunlight and fling its fragrance on the passing breeze. The grandest works of the past were never performed for the sake of money. Who can measure the worth of a Shakespeare, an Angelo, or Beethoven in dollars and cents? Agassiz said he had no time to make money. There were higher and better objects in life than that. 
And so it will be when humanity is once relieved from the pressing fear of starvation, want, and slavery. It will be concerned less and less about the ownership of vast accumulations of wealth. Such possessions would be but an annoyance and trouble. When two or three or four hours a day of easy, of healthful labor will produce all the comforts and luxuries one can use, and the opportunity to labor is never denied, people will become indifferent as to who owns the wealth they do not need. Wealth will be below par, and it will be found that men and women will not accept it for pay, or be bribed by it to do what they would not willingly and naturally do without it. Some higher incentive must and will supersede the greed for gold. The involuntary aspiration born in man to make the most of oneself, to be loved and appreciated by one's fellow beings, to make the world better for having lived in it, will urge him on to nobler deeds than ever the sordid and selfish incentive of material gain has done. If in the present chaotic and shameful struggle for existence, when organized society offers a premium on greed, cruelty, and deceit, men can be found who stand aloof and almost alone in their determination to work for good rather than gold, who suffer want and persecution rather than desert principle, who can bravely walk to the scaffold for the good they can do humanity, what may we expect from men when freed from the grinding necessity of selling the better part of themselves for bread? The terrible conditions under which labor is performed, the awful alternative if one does not prostitute talent and morals in the surface of mammon, and the power acquired with the wealth attained by ever so unjust means, combine to make the conception of free and voluntary labor almost an impossible one. And yet there are examples of this principle even now. In a well-bred family, each person has certain duties, which are performed cheerfully and are not measured out and paid for according to some predetermined standard. When the united members sit down to the well-filled table, the stronger do not scramble to get the most while the weakest do without, or gather greedily around them more food than they can possibly consume. Each patiently and politely awaits his turn to be served and leaves what he does not want. He is certain that when again hungry, plenty of good food will be provided. This principle can be extended to include all society when people are civilized enough to wish it. Again, the utter impossibility of awarding to each an exact return for the amount of labor performed will render absolute communism a necessity sooner or later. The land and all it contains, without which labor cannot be exerted, belong to no one man but to all alike. The inventions and discoveries of the past are the common inheritance of the coming generations. And when a man takes the tree that nature furnished free and fashions it into a useful article, or a machine perfected and bequeathed to him by many past generations, who is to determine what proportion is his and his alone? Primitive man would have been a weak fashioning a rude resemblance to the article with his clumsy tools, where the modern worker has occupied an hour. The finished article is of far more real value than the rude one made long ago, and yet the primitive man toiled the longest and hardest. Who can determine with exact justice what is each one's due? There must come a time when we will cease trying. The earth is so bountiful, so generous, man's brain is so active, his hands so restless, that wealth will spring like magic, ready for the use of the world's inhabitants. We will become as much ashamed to quarrel over its possession as we are now to squabble over the food spread before us on a loaded table. But all this, the objector urges, is very beautiful in the far-off future, when we become angels. It would not do now to abolish governments and legal restraints. People are not prepared for it. This is a question. 
We have seen in reading history that whenever an old time restriction has been removed, the people have not abused their newer liberty. Once it was considered necessary to compel men to save their souls with the aid of government scaffolds, church racks, and stakes. Until the foundation of the American Republic, it was considered absolutely essential that governments should second the efforts of the church in forcing people to attend the means of grace. And yet it is found that the standards of morals among the masses is raised since they are left free to pray as they fit. Or not at all, if they prefer it. It was believed that chattel slaves would not work if the overseer and whip were removed. They are so much more a source of profit now that ex-slave owners would not return to the old system if they could. So many able writers have shown that unjust institutions which work so much misery and suffering to the masses have their root in governments and owe their whole existence to the power derived from government. We cannot help but believe that were every law, every title deed, every court, and every police officer or soldier abolished tomorrow with one sweep, we would be better off than now. The actual material things that man needs would still exist. His strength and skill would remain, and his instinctive social inclinations retain their force, and the resources of life made free to all the people that they would need no force but that of society and the opinion of fellow beings to keep them moral and upright. Freed from the systems that made him wretched before, he is not likely to make himself more wretched for lack of them. Much more is contained in the thought that conditions make man what he is, and not the laws and penalties made for his guidance than is supposed by careless observation. We have laws, jails, courts, armies, guns, and armories enough to make saints of us all, if they were the true preventives of crime. But we know they do not prevent crime. That wickedness and depravity exist in spite of them, nay, increase as the struggle between classes grows fiercer, wealth greater and more powerful, and poverty more gaunt and desperate. To the governing class, the anarchists say, Gentlemen, we ask no privilege. We propose no restriction." nor, on the other hand, will we permit it. We have no new shackles to propose. We seek emancipation from shackles. We ask no legislative sanction, for cooperation asks only for a free field and no favors. Neither will we permit their interference. It asserts that in freedom of the social unit lies the freedom of the social state. It asserts that in freedom to possess and utilize soil lies social happiness and progress and the death of rent. It asserts that order can only exist where liberty prevails and that progress leads and never follows order. It asserts, finally, that this emancipation will inaugurate liberty, equality, fraternity. That the existing industrial system has outgrown its usefulness, if it ever had any, is, I believe, admitted by all who have given serious thought to this phase of social conditions. The manifestations of discontent now looming upon every side show that society is conducted on wrong principles and that something has got to be done soon or the wage class will sink into a slavery worse than was the feudal serf. I say to the wage class, think clearly and act quickly or you are lost. Strike not for a few cents more an hour because the price of living will be raised faster still. But strike for all you earn. Be content with nothing less. Following are the definitions which will appear in all of the new standard dictionaries. Anarchism, the philosophy of a new social order based on liberty unrestricted by man-made law, the theory that all forms of government are based on violence, hence wrong and harmful, as well as unnecessary. 
anarchy, absence of government, disbelief in and disregard of invasion and authority based on coercion and force, a condition of society regulated by voluntary agreement instead of government. Anarchist 1. A believer in anarchism, one opposed to all forms of coercive government and invasive authority. 2. One who advocates anarchy or absence of government as the ideal of political liberty and social harmony. This has been The Principles of Anarchism by Lucy Parsons. The next text is the June 29th speech at the founding convention of the Industrial Workers of the World in 1905 by Lucy Parsons. I can assure you that after the intellectual feast that I have enjoyed immensely this afternoon, I feel fortunate to appear before you now in response to your call. I do not wish you to think that I am here to play upon words when I tell you that I stand before you and feel much like a pygmy before intellectual giants, but that is only the fact. I wish to state to you that I have taken the floor because no other woman has responded, and I feel that it would not be out of place for me to say in my poor way a few words about this movement. We, the women of this country, have no ballot even if we wish to use it. And the only way that we can be represented is to take a man to represent us. You men have made such a mess of it in representing us that we have not much confidence in asking you. And I, for one, feel very backward in asking the men to represent me. We have no ballot, but we have our labor. I think it is August Bevel, in his Woman in the Past, Present, and Future, a book that should be read by every woman that works for wages. Bevel says that men have been slaves throughout all the ages, but that women's condition has been worse, for she has been the slave of a slave. There was never a greater truth uttered. We are the slaves of the slaves. We are exploited more ruthlessly than men. Wherever wages are to be reduced, the capitalist class use women to reduce them. And if there is anything that you men should do in the future, it is to organize the women. And I say that if the women had inaugurated a boycott of the State Street stores since the Teamster strike, the stores would have surrendered long ago. I do not stand before you to brag. I had no man connected with that strike to make it of interest to me to boycott the stores. But I have not bought one penny's worth there since that strike was inaugurated. I intended to boycott all of them as one individual at least and so it is important to educate the women. Now, I wish to show my sisters here that we fasten the chains of slavery upon our sisters, sometimes unwittingly, when we go down to the department store and look around so cheap. When we come to reflect, it simply means the robbery of our sisters, for we know that the things cannot be made for such prices and give the women who made them fair wages. I wish to say that I have attended many conventions in the 27 years since I came here to Chicago, a young girl so full of life and animation and hope. It is to youth that hope comes. It is to age that reflection comes. I have attended conventions from that day to this, of one kind and another, and taken part in them. I have taken part in some in which our comrade Debs had a part. I was at the organization that he organized in this city some eight or ten years ago. Now, the point I want to make is that these conventions are full of enthusiasm. And that is right. We should sometimes mix sentiment with soberness. It is a part of life. But when you go out of this hall, when you have laid aside your enthusiasm, then comes the solid work. Are you going out of here with your minds made up that the class which we call ourselves revolutionary socialists, so-called, 
that class is organized to meet organized capital with the millions at its command, it has many weapons to fight us. First, it has money. Then it has legislative tools. Then it has armories. And last, it has the gallows. We call ourselves revolutionists. Do you know what the capitalists mean to do to you revolutionists? I simply throw these hints out that you young people may become reflective and know what you have to face at the first, and then it will give you strength. I am not here to cause any discouragement, but simply to encourage you to go on in your grand work. Now, that is the solid foundation that I hope this organization will be built on, that it may be built not like a house upon the sand, that when the waves of adversity come, it may go over into the ocean of oblivion, but that it shall be built upon a strong, granite, hard foundation. A foundation made up of the hearts and aspirations of the men and women of this 20th century, who have set their minds, their hands, their hearts, and their heads against the past with all its miserable poverty, with its wage slaves, with its children ground into dividends, with its miners away down under the earth and with never the light of sunshine, and with its women selling the holy name of womanhood for a day's board. I hope we understand that this organization has set its face against that iniquity, and that it has set its eyes to the rising star of liberty. That means fraternity, solidarity, the universal brotherhood of man. I hope that while politics have been mentioned here, I am not one of those who, because a man or woman disagrees with me, cannot act with them. I am glad and proud to say that I am too broad-minded to say that they are fakir or fool or a fraud because they disagree with me. My view may be narrow, and theirs may be broad, but I do say to those who have intimated politics here as being necessary or a part of this organization that I do not impute to them dishonesty or impure motives. But as I understand the call for this convention, politics had no place here. It was simply to be an economic organization, and I hope for the good of this organization that when we go away from this hall and our comrades go some to the west, some to the east, some to the north, and some to the south, while some remain in Chicago, and all spread this light over this broad land and carry the message of what this convention has done, that there will be no room for politics at all. There may be room for politics. I have nothing to say about that, but it is a bread and butter question, an economic issue upon which the fight must be made. Now, what do we mean when we say revolutionary socialist? We mean that the land shall belong to the landless, the tools to the toiler, and the products to the producers. Now, let us analyze that for just a moment before you applaud me. First, the land belongs to the landless. Is there a single landowner in this country who owns his land by the constitutional rights given by the Constitution of the United States? who will allow you to vote it away from him? I am not such a fool as to believe it. We say, the tools belong to the toiler. They are owned by the capitalist class. Do you believe that they will allow you to go into the halls of the legislature and simply say, be it enacted, that on and after a certain day, the capitalists shall no longer own the tools and the factories and the places of industry, the ships that plow the ocean and our lakes? Do you believe that they will submit? I do not. We say, the product belongs to the producers. It belongs to the capitalist class as their legal property. Do you think that they will allow you to vote them away from them by passing a law and saying, be it enacted that on and after a certain day, Mr. Capitalist shall be dispossessed? You may, but I do not believe it. Hence, when you roll under your tongue the expression that you are revolutionists, remember what that word means. It means a revolution that shall turn all these things over where they belong, to the wealth producers. How shall the wealth producers come into the possession of them? 
I believe that if every man and every woman who works, or who toils in the mines, the mills, the workshops, the fields, the factories, and the farms, in our broad America should decide in their minds that they shall have that which of right belongs to them, and that no idler shall live upon their toil. And when your new organization, your economic organization, shall declare as man to man and woman to woman, as brothers and sisters, that you are determined that you will possess these things, then there is no army that is large enough to overcome you, for you yourselves constitute the army. Now when you have decided that you will take possession of these things, there will not need to be one gun fired or one scaffold erected. You will simply come into your own, by your own independence and your own manhood, and by asserting your own individuality. And not by sending any man to any legislature in any state of the American Union to enact a law that you shall have what is your own, Yours by nature and by your manhood and by your very presence upon this earth. Nature has been lavish to her children. She has placed in this earth all the material of wealth that is necessary to make men and women happy. She has given us brains to go into her storehouse and bring from its recesses all that is necessary. She has given us these two hands and these brains to manufacture them on parallel with all other civilizations. There is just one thing we lack, and we have only ourselves to blame if we do not become free. We simply lack the intelligence to take possession of that hope, and I feel that the men and women who constitute a convention like this can come together and organize that intelligence. I feel that you will at least listen to me, and maybe you will disagree with it. I wish to say that my conception of the future method of taking possession of this earth is that of the general strike. That is my conception of it. The trouble with all the strikes in the past has been this. The working men, like the teamsters of our cities, these hard-working teamsters, strike and go out and starve. Their children starve. Their wives get discouraged. Some feel that they have to go out and beg for relief, and to get a little coal to keep the children warm, or a little bread to keep the wife from starving, or a little something to keep the spark of life in them, so that they can remain wage slaves. That is the way with the strikes in the past. My conception of the strike of the future is not to strike and go out and starve, but to strike and remain in and take possession of the necessary property of production. If anyone is to starve, I do not say it is necessary, let it be the capitalist class. They have starved us long enough, while they have had wealth and luxury and all that is necessary. You men and women should be imbued with the spirit that is now displayed in far-off Russia and far-off Siberia, where we thought the spark of manhood and womanhood had been crushed out of them. Let us take example from them. We see the capitalist class fortifying themselves today behind their citizens' associations and employers' associations in order that they may crush the American labor movement. Let us cast our eyes over to far-off Russia and take heart and courage from those who are fighting the battle there and from the further facts shown in the dispatches that appear this morning in the news that carries the greatest terror to the capitalist class throughout the world, the emblem that has been the terror of all tyrants through all the ages. And there you will see that the red flag has been raised. According to the Tribune, the greatest terror is evinced in Odessa and all through Russia because the red flag has been raised. They know that where the red flag has been raised, whoever enroll themselves beneath that flag recognize the universal brotherhood of man. They recognize that the red current that flows through the veins of all humanity is identical. That the ideas of all humanity are identical. That those who raise the red flag, it matters not where, whether on the sunny plains of China or on the sun-beaten hills of Africa or on the far-off snow-capped shores of the North or in Russia or America, that they all belong to the human family and have an identity of interest. That is what they know. So when we come to decide, 
Let us sink such differences as nationality, religion, politics, and set our eyes eternally and forever towards the rising star of the Industrial Republic of Labor, remembering that we have left the old behind and have set our faces toward the future. There is no power on earth that can stop men and women who are determined to be free at all hazards. There is no power on earth so great as the power of intellect. It moves the world and it moves the earth. Now in conclusion, I wish to say to you, and you will excuse me because of what I am going to say and only attribute it to my interest in humanity. I wish to say that 19 years ago on the 4th of May of this year, I was one of those at a meeting at the Haymarket in this city to protest against 11 working men being shot to pieces at a factory in the southeastern part of this city because they had dared to strike for the eight-hour movement that was to be inaugurated in America in 1886. The Haymarket meeting was called primarily and entirely to protest against the murder of comrades at the McCormick factory. When that meeting was nearing its close, someone threw a bomb. No one knows to this day who threw it except the man who threw it. Possibly he has rendered his account with nature and has passed away. But no human being alive knows who threw it. And yet in the soil of Illinois, the soil that gave a Lincoln to America, the soil in which the great magnificent Lincoln was buried, in the state that was supposed to be the most liberal in the Union, Five men sleep the last sleep in Waldheim under a monument that has been raised there because they dared to raise their voices for humanity. I say to any of you who are here and can do so, it is well worth your time to go out there and draw some inspiration around the graves of the first martyrs who fell in the great industrial struggle for liberty on American soil. I say to you that even within the sound of my voice, only two short blocks from where we meet today, the scaffold was erected on which those five men paid the penalty for daring to raise their voices against the iniquities of the age in which we live. We are assembled here for the same purpose. And do any of you older men remember the telegrams that were sent out from Chicago while our comrades were not yet even cut down from the cruel gallows? Anarchy is dead, and these miscreants have been put out of the way. Oh friends, I am sorry that I even had to use that word, anarchy just now in your presence, which was not in my mind at the outset. So if any of you wish to go out there and look at this monument that has been raised by those who believe in their comrades' innocence and sincerity, I will ask you, when you have gone out and looked at the monument, that you will go to the reverse side of the monument, and there, on the reverse side, the words of a man, himself the purest and noblest man who ever sat in the gubernatorial chair of the state of Illinois, John P. Altgeld. On that monument, you will read the clause of his message in which he pardoned the men who were lingering then in Joliet. I have nothing more to say. I ask you to read the words of Altgeld, who was at the time the governor, and had been a lawyer and a judge, and knew whereof he spoke, and then take out your copy books and copy the words of Altgeld when he released those who had not been slaughtered at the capitalist behests, and then take them home and change your minds about what those men were put to death for. Now, I have taken up your time in this because I simply feel that I have a right as a mother and as a wife of one of those sacrificed men to say whatever I can to bring the light to bear upon this conspiracy and to show you the way it was. Now, I thank you for the time that I have taken up of yours. I hope that we will meet again sometime, you and I, in some hall where we can meet and organize the wage workers of America, the men and women, so that their children may not go into the factories, nor the women into the factories, unless they go under proper conditions. I hope even now to live to see the day when the first dawn of the new era will have arisen, when capitalism will be a thing of the past, and the new industrial republic, the commonwealth of labor, shall be in operation. I thank you. That was Lucy Parsons, 
speech on June 29th of the founding convention of the International Workers of the World. The previous text was The Principles of Anarchism by Lucy Parsons. A discussion episode of these texts will be coming later this month. You can find more information about the series Anarchism 101 at my website, everydayanarchism.com, where you can also give financially to keep the show going. You can also email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com with questions about this series or anything else related to anarchism. And you can also help the podcast by telling a friend or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All that's left to say is that the music, which you are about to hear, is by David Hill.